started. The start of the podcast. Uh, so we've joined this podcast with Ivan Lewis. Um, what, what positions have you taken in the government, just to give people an idea of what you've done? Okay. Uh, hi, Ellie and Aaron. It's great to be with you this evening. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing, trying to promote what's going on in the community and the wider world to young Jews in Manchester. And uh, I wish you all the best with this Thank venture. You. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to take part. I suppose my story is that I spent my early years working for charities of one kind or another with people with learning disabilities to start with, and then with people who were elderly people, people with mental health problems, actually in the Jewish community here in Manchester. Uh, then I was elected to the local council, Berry Council, at the age of uh, 23. That's quite young. Uh, I was young, I was very young. <laughs> then elected to Parliament at the age of 30, representing uh, Berry South in, uh, in Parliament. Uh, I served as the Member of Parliament for Berry South for 22 uh, years. I had nine years in the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown governments, and I had five years uh, in Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet. Um, and of course, the opportunity to represent your hometown community or constituency in Parliament is an amazing honour. Uh, and that, that was, I say, something that I did for 22 uh, years. I only come from a relatively ordinary North Manchester Jewish family, so if somebody would have said to me when I was your age, I would have had those opportunities, to be honest with you, I would have said, go and lie down in a darkened room because you can't be talking about me. So in many ways, through all the ups and downs of life, when you get to my age, you've been through many ups and downs. Um, I've been very blessed with the opportunities that I've been given. Oh, that's amazing. What propelled you from just, like you said, that you're just an old, from an ordinary family to such a position, such a high position? I think what changed my life was at the age of 14, I started doing voluntary work with people with learning disabilities for a local Jewish organisation called Outreach. And uh, from that moment onwards, really, I decided I wanted to do something different than the norm in my life. So the more I did that kind of work, uh, the more I, I wasn't going to do the route that my parents had hoped, which would be that I would be the first Lewis to go to university. So I got to 17, I said, I don't want to do educate, formal education anymore, uh, I want to do this work. Um, so I got involved, um, I set up a charity when I was 19 years of age, locally, for people with learning disabilities and mental health problems. Um, and I think that um, the more I, I became involved in that work, the more I realised that many of the decisions were hampering the people I was working with, the individuals themselves, their families, were as a result of political decisions. What do you mean uh, by that? Well, you know, whether it was access to benefits, making sure they got the right support when they needed it, making sure parents had emotional support, individuals had the chance to fulfil their potential despite their disabilities. There are all these restrictions, constraints, lack of funding that were getting in the way. And I, I, very quickly, I realised that was to do politics. Now, from a young age, I've been always fascinated by politics, an unhealthy young age, from probably the age of 11 or 12. But I've never actually thought of getting involved. I joined the local Labour Party. They asked me to get involved more and more, uh, and that led me to stand before the council. Uh, and I was elected first time around uh, at the age of 23 did. in 1990. Tell that to Bernie Sanders. Uh, <laughs> for Sedgley Park, which again was my home area. Um, so um, I think it's making the link really between the things that you care about and feel passionately about and the grievances that you feel about what's wrong in society with recognising that politics is a place you can make a difference. And... I guess the work I was doing, I had the privilege of feeling that I could make a difference for the people I was helping. I then went to work, by the way, for Jewish Social Services, uh, and then along with others I created the FED, which was a merger oh, wow. of Jewish Social Services and the Benevolent Society, um, which was pr the pre-merger before Heathlands joined that organisation. 
and that was the very last thing I did before I went to Parliament in 1997. So I always say to people that if you can combine earning a living with something you really care about and are passionate about, then that's the ideal. And I've always had, I've had the privilege of that opportunity. You know, a lot of people go to work as a means to an end. You know, and some people in your generation listening to that will understand this. I've got only one piece of advice. Somebody told me this recently. Look at what you really enjoy, what are you really good at, and what does your community or society or country need, and then think about doing that as your uh, as your living. So many options. Yeah. Is there a lot of options? Or? Well, but if you think about that, so so, so if you did a tra diagram which had what you what you yeah. really enjoy, what you're really good at, and what your country needs, you might find it's quite a narrow. What you're really yeah, good yeah, at, and what you enjoy, small sweets, and then what's needed. Yeah. And I've always, uh, this, is somebody t this is something I was told by a rabbi relatively recently, I think it's a very good way of looking at, you know, a, a good careers advice really, if you like. But I've been blessed, as I say, with always going to work, even now post my political life, now I'm running a, a charity again, um, here in the Jewish community in Manchester, uh, about being able to do something where I'm making a difference and feeling that I'm making a positive contribution. So like, so like you said, being in a charity and such an engaged really changed your life, how you thought about it. You did something, you got instant, or not, maybe not instant, but you saw a return in the effect. Do, you th do most teenagers mm. do that? Um, do you think, uh, uh, it feels like from, your from what you're saying that we should push teenagers to help our charity as much as possible. I think a lot of teenagers get a bad... Um, write up. I think many teenagers are involved in doing good things, and whether it's voluntary work, whether it's um, supporting their family um, because they have disabled parents or grandparents, uh, whether it's giving to good causes, whether it's campaigning for issues they care about. The idea that young people don't care about society or politics is absolute rubbish. Okay, often young people don't believe that politicians and political parties have the solutions. But it doesn't mean that young people don't care. And and my yeah, my, my I would say to young people listening to this, get involved. Uh, and, and what you've got to remember is you get a tremendous amount back for yourself. And I don't mean financially. I mean in terms of your own personal development, your sense of satisfaction, your self-esteem, um, all of those things. You know, doing for others and supporting and helping others, you get a lot back in return. And you learn a lot about life. You know, when you're working with people, because of the label they have, their whole lives are disadvantaged. And many of these people, remember, with disabilities, know that they are different and know that people treat them differently, okay? Imagine living with that every day right, and the things you have to overcome, okay? And the things that parents of disabled children and young people have to overcome in terms of constantly fighting for things that aren't given to them very easily, constantly having to tell one professional after another the same story, yeah, fighting instead of being, you know, given what they need, um, it, it teaches you a lot about life and maybe it makes you count your own blessings but it also makes you driven to want to see change no, I definitely agree with you I've run several philanthropy projects just started the one again now a youth club um, and brilliant. Just, it, it, sorry. That's brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And it really it's, it does change me. Like yeah. it's, what it's, kind of youth pub is it aimed at? What what so, sort of folks? So this is primary school. So we just we we just got I think this week we've got, we just started two three weeks ago. We had uh, eight ten boys then, then fourteen boys, and I think this week we have like twenty four. So it's slowly stepping up, and I think I think we'll continue. We're trying to get brought in as well. So that's uh, that, that's really good. Um, but yeah, so it, it, those really change you when you see that instant change. Not instant, but you see the change people come in. 
they, they look a bit sad and they mess sure. around with people. Yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating that. Um, one question is, you said that people, the young people do care, which I definitely agree with you. The issue is, I feel that young people, although they care, they feel like politicians are out of touch, Correct. especially with the social media. Correct. Now, how, how is that supposed to happen in this? How is that supposed to correlate? I think it's very difficult. You see people largely, you know, in, in suits, um, all looking similar, all saying the same type of things. Uh, being presented increasingly in the media as untrustworthy, as dishonourable, um, as not to be trusted, uh, where many people in politics, of course, are not like that. You know, there are people in politics like that, believe me, but there's there also people, are many people who aren't. Um, so, so it's quite hard. I mean, what I, I tried to do during the period I was a politician, I went a lot into local schools. Uh, I did a lot of campaigning around issues that young people cared about, whether it was free travel, um, whether it was um, access to the, the, uh, the mental issue, health services. The issue is on that, I hear, that, uh, I hear you c- there's no point focusing on young, young people because they can't vote. They might as well, well, I'll tell you a story. I've not said this before, so it's a world exclusive to your <laughs> podcast. Um, one of my great frustrations was that in about 2014, Ed Miliband appointed me to lead Labour's young voter strategy in the whole country. I had a most amazing six months developing that young voter strategy. And um, what I was told time and time again during that period was, well, it's all great and it's good and you've got these exciting ideas about using social media to galvanise young people. But at the end of the day, on average, 42, 43% of young people vote in general elections and 80% of older people vote. And therefore, it's the older people's votes that matter. You're wasting your time. You're not going to be able to increase the number of young people who vote. Now, my answer to that is, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If political parties only focus on older people because of that, okay, uh, then the young people will feel alienated. And often, um, if you look at the choices that political parties have made in terms of how they prioritise funding, it goes to older people very cynically for that reason. So there's two issues here. One is, you, it's wrong for any political party that seeks to govern this country to have that attitude. And by the way, despite the fact that Ed Miliband asked me to do this, and he believed in it, I, I do believe that at the time, there were even people in the hierarchy of the Labour Party who didn't believe in it. They thought it was a waste of time. Did they tell to you focus. that to face? Yeah, more or less. More or less. And we needed to focus on older, uh, you, and older you people. to still try and fight, toward, fight for the but, cause? But, but, yeah, we continue to fight. But, but, but there's, a, there's a really important uh, contribution young people have to make. And that is, if in large numbers young people do not bother voting, then this will continue. It will be perpetuated. And it will go on and on and on. So young people also have a duty, in my view, a responsibility to vote. Look, if you go and vote, and you put on the ballot paper, none of the above, I have respect for you. You don't want to vote for any of them. Fine. But go and vote. Don't tell me you have grievances and you're unhappy about what's going on in your neighbourhood or your community or your society or the world if you don't exercise your right to vote. And I think there is a case... It's a case for compulsory voting for first-time voters, to get them to the polls so they experience what it's like, and that could be a life-changing exercise in terms of their determination to vote in the future. As I say, with the right to go and put on the ballot paper, none of these, spoil your ballot paper, just put, you with me? Yeah, at least force people to vote yeah. for one of the parties. But it's also a cop-out to say, in my opinion again, uh, none of these parties represent my views. In life... Whether you're, whatever job you're in, whatever relationship you end up in, uh, whatever family situation you're in, compromise is a daily reality. 
So why should politics be any different? You have to find a party which has the most that chimes with your values, your beliefs, your principles. No matter how little But you'll never find a party that you agree with on absolutely everything. Um, so please, my plea to young people is, uh, first of all, I've always encouraged um, local young people, even now, I don't know, that, that, that are wanting to get involved in politics, wanting to become local councillors or MPs, yeah, who, who contact me and ask me for advice, I want to see as many young people involved as, as possible. But even if you don't want to get involved as a, as a councillor or a member of a political party, please, at the very least, vote. And if you don't feel you know enough about it, try and find out. Find out more. So do you think we should legal, uh, We should say you have to vote? Right, so what I'm saying is there's an argument for compulsory voting for the first time oh, vote at the age of 18. Oh. I mean, obviously, there's an argument, by the way, of votes at 60, as you know. My view about that is I have no problem with votes at 16, providing it's accompanied with, in the education system, young people being taught about politics and the political system and why it matters. Now, obviously, not indoctrinating young people about particular biases. Which is very hard to do okay. when it's taught in different schools, which yeah. have certain views. Well, yeah, but, te- no, but I think that's unfair to teach. Teachers are expected to teach every other subject professionally. So why shouldn't they be expected to teach political processes, the way politics works, professionally and objectively as well? Well, I'm saying I'm attacking other other subjects as well. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. I'm, but I'm saying all of them. Especially, but if you if you teach political uh, in a school, they're mm. way more likely to bring across their side more. Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a great believer in having like you go to some schools. There's a, there's, there's there's many debates that they hold yeah. uh, regularly. They have public speaking competitions. All of that, in my opinion, should not just be happening in private fee paying schools. Yeah, it should be happening in the state system. Because it also gives young people tremendous confidence um, and boosts their um, development, their chances of a job later in life. Public speaking, as I say, participating in debates, this shouldn't be seen as a sort of minor part of your education. It should be much more central to young people's education. So Yeah, because right now it's all optional. Um, Absolutely. But, do you th- but on like a personal level, do you think we should make it compulsory? Yeah, I think there's yeah. a... Yes, I would... Uh, um, on balance, as long as young people have the right to go along and say none of the above, I would hope they would vote, feel able to vote for one of the parties. But if they didn't, yeah, I do think compulsory first-time voting is a good idea. So, so, so if, whether it's votes at 18 or 16, whatever the law is at the time, uh, I think that that should be... Should, should, it, be, should it be 16? Wouldn't you think they I think, too young? So, so, so my answer to that is it should only be 16 if you have agreed that in the secondary school curriculum, and maybe even the latter years of primary school, you're teaching young people about politics and the political process, why it matters, how it's relevant to their lives. You see, one of the reasons people don't vote, which is often misunderstood, there are people who don't vote because they make a conscious choice. None of these parties offer me anything. Many other people don't vote because they simply do not know how to vote, what voting is. They're scared of going to the ballot vote. Nobody's ever shown them how you, where you put the cross where you go to vote, how you do it, yeah? So there's a combination of factors. Some people, young people actively choose, I respect that, you know, they don't want to vote for any of the parties. At least put it down, put it down. Yeah, first time, I'm not saying making compulsory after that, for all ages, by the way. Some countries, Australia has compulsory voting for all ages, okay? I'm saying if you make your first, because my view is, once somebody votes that first time and they feel comfortable doing it, they're much more likely to vote the rest of their life. And they're much more likely to encourage their kids to vote, which is, by the way, equally important.
in the future when they have kids, you know, many years later. Yes, same with a lot with basically anything in life. We're going to the gym, doing exercise. Once you start, then you usually uh, continue. Don't talk to me about that. I've had my gym bag in my car now for the last four weeks, and I've been once. I finally made it. Um, You're right. It's exactly like that. Yeah, you just need to rock up a few times. It's like when you always yeah. say you're on the edge of the swimming pool and you, you know it's freezing and you, you, yeah. you, you you're just gonna, put your toes in. Are you gonna yeah? Are you gonna put your toes in or yeah. are you gonna you know? It's a bit like that. Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> or you just dive right in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just another point for you, Jimmy. You, could, you just also get um, get other people to help to go with you and then they'll push you into doing it. Yeah, rather than going yourself. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just moving on to a separate point, if you don't mind, about Christian Wakeford, because he, he you. If, if I recall, you were running as independent and then you stepped down, um, which, which everyone looked up to in the community um, because you didn't want um, Labour to win. So you, you helped um, the Conservative with, with Christian Wakeford to win, which he did. Um, and, but since then, he's moved to opposite to the opposite side, which I'm not sure if you... What, what's your views on this? Well, like everybody else, I was pretty shocked. Um, as people will recall, some people will recall, um, the last election was unique. In my view, the big picture, above all else, was to stop Jeremy Corbyn. It was a danger to the Jewish community, but also, by the way, a danger to wider British society, in my opinion. And in Bury South, uh, after about 10 days of being the independent candidate, I was really concerned that there would be unintended consequences of people voting for me who should be voting to stop Corbyn, i.e. voting Conservative in this case. So, as you quite rightly say, I told people to vote for Christian. Like uh, many, many people, I was staggered, shocked, uh, when I heard the news. Uh, he certainly didn't discuss it with me or consult me in any way. Um, and obviously, in my view, it's for, it's for the people of uh, Bury South to decide on how they feel to, about the action that he has taken. Do you wish taken. he had discussed it with you before? No, it's not. I, I, I think it's not about that. I think that when you're going to make big decisions like that, which massively affect um, the choice that your voters have made, have made it's probably good to consult a number of people before you make such a choice because you're in a bubble in politics you're in the Westminster bubble and sometimes you make these decisions and you haven't discussed it with other people I think he massively underestimated the negative reaction that he's had um, particularly from the Jewish community but also from the wider electorate as well I don't think he factored in I think he thought he'd done a really good job as the MP for Bury South uh, and that would mean that people would uh, basically stick with him. Um, and I think people feel, many people have used the word uh, betrayed. Um, others feel he's acted in a, other people feel he's acted in a principled way. There is a split, okay? But the vast majority of people, I think, are shocked uh, and disappointed. And obviously he's got to uh, find a way of having a dialogue with people in Bury South to explain why he did what he did. Uh, do, do, you, do you feel betrayed because he obviously because you obviously st- didn't want Labour to win and any circumstances and this could help them. but of course that was to stop Jeremy Jer- Corbyn's Labour Party it's uh, it no longer Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party but I think the trouble is to send a message that all is well um, when there are still some issues that still have to be resolved and by the way I think Keir Starmer is trying I don't think there's any doubt about that uh, I don't think anybody can seriously say he is anti-Semitic, um, he isn't, okay? But there are still uh, many people uh, in the Labour Party who hold views which are, frankly, not uh, acceptable uh, and came into the Labour Party under the banner of Corbyn, okay? 
And so m my message really was that the Labour, is that the Labour Party still has a, a significant way to go to rebuild trust with um, all sections of the electorate, but particularly with the Jewish community. I, I think there's a danger that some people in the Labour Party tick the box and think they've done everything now, uh, they're acceptable to the community, and all is well. It is not well. Um, the community has been very badly scarred uh, by that Corbyn era. Uh, they know for a fact they're not, stu not stupid. They know that there's many people who supported those uh, policies who remain in the party. Admittedly, they don't have as much power and influence, which is a really good thing. Uh, and that's uh, 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 Keir Starmer should be applauded uh, uh, for that. But many of them are still in the party. And you only have to look at the conference resolution at the last Labour Party conference, which basically was passed overwhelmingly calling for a boycott of the State of Israel. Now, if that is the view of the vast majority of ordinary members and trade unions in the Labour Party, then for me, that's still a cause for grave concern. You know, we, we're seeing in the world right now horrendous things happening all over again. What Russia's doing in Ukraine is, is, is abhorrent. We've got the, the constant threat of Iran in the Middle East. Uh, we've got uh, China exerting its power and influence uh, all over. And yet these people are obsessed with their hatred of one little state in the Middle East, i.e. the State of Israel. Now, why are they so obsessed disproportionately with their hatred of a state which has an Arab party in its government, where, which has Arab citizens that are allowed to vote, one person, one vote, which is responsible in the world for much innovation in technology, in medicine, in science? Okay, why are they so obsessed in demonising this country? Now, I would have to say it leads you to think that maybe, uh, for some of those people, it's motivated by anti-Semitism. Now, I want to be clear about this. Uh, you can criticise the actions of any Israeli government, whether it's Netanyahu's government or Bennett's government, and not be an anti-Semite, OK? But if you disproportionately single out Israel for criticism in an obsessive, unfair, disproportionate way, uh, then in my view, that is anti-Semitic. Uh, and I think that the Labour Party it can't be um, underestimated that uh, in this era of a new leader, post-Corbyn, at the last conference, they passed a resolution calling for a boycott of uh, Israel. When you, when you run for MP, um, when you, you were in la under Labour, um, you were MP for Labour, did they have the same views as they have? No, no, for most of the time. You know, the, the ironic thing about all of this, if you look back in history, and, and many of the young people listening to this, um, will have, some of them will have studied history, but some won't. Um, in the 1960s, you had Labour governments led by Harold Wilson. Uh, he, he, he called himself a Zionist, right? And he was very pro-Israel. Uh, yeah. uh, the next uh, Labour Prime Minister, James Callaghan, only there for a short period, he was quite pro-Israel as well. And of course, Tony Blair was extremely um, pro-Israel, uh, Gordon Brown as well. So... The history of the Labour Party, Corbyn was an aberration. He wasn't the norm, OK? And, and we've got to remember that. You know, there are many, many wonderful people who share Labour values, who are on the, in the Labour Party, been in the Labour Party for, for all their lives. Some of them live locally and are Jews who have stuck with the Labour Party, right? They're good people with the right values, OK? However, there is this significant number who came in with Corbyn, yeah, most, a lot of them, who have this hatred this abhorrence and this demonisation of the state of Israel. And, you know, we should not be ashamed to say this. Um, in this world, we face, sadly, the resurgence of anti-Semitism in your generation um, is a serious threat, not just in this country, in Europe and around uh, the world, OK? And our only insurance policy, frankly, 
if you think about it, is obviously good people uh, running countries who are willing to stand up for Jews and, sh- and, and fight anti-Semitism. But at the end of the day, the state of Israel is the best insurance policy Jewish people have, if you look at our history. But it's not just talking about the Holocaust, you know, world's, the world's man's greatest inhumanity to man. It's the fact that it's the oldest hatred of all, Jew hatred. Yeah, and it continues, and it prevails to this oh, day. So, so not to understand, if you claim to be a socialist, or you believe in social justice, not to understand the realities of that history, and be sensitive and empathetic. These are the same people who march down the streets in tens of thousands for every other minority in the world. Right? They'll hold banners and marches and rallies to defend every conceivable minority under threat. Yeah? Except for one. Israel. So, well, what Israel means to to Jews and why it means what it means for Jews. So, um, you see, there's been different forms of anti-Semitism through history. I personally believe that the the most dangerous current stream of anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. Okay, Zionism is the right of Jewish people to self-determination in their own state. Yeah. These same people believe in the right of self-determination for other minorities in every part of the world. Why are we different? Right? Zionism is not about expansionism, aggression, uh, fighting other people, denying other people their rights. It's the right, and this is what we've got to do. We've got to reclaim the word Zionism, by the way. We have backed off this as a Jewish community. Uh, we've become a little bit apprehensive, a little bit scared. We've got to be proud because Zionism... Right now, there is a small minority of people who describe themselves as Zionists who want to expand and grow, but they are the tiniest of minorities. Okay, and um, so we have got to, in my view, the Jewish community has got to be proud of that word, has got to reclaim it, and it's got to make the argument to wider society, both in this country and around the world, that if you are virulently anti-Zionist. Uh, that in itself is anti-Semitic. is anti-Semitic. If you are an opponent of some of the things that any Israeli government does, you have every right to be, right? Many Jewish people have concerns about certain things that from time to time the Israeli government might do. No government in the world is perfect. No government is perfect. Uh, particularly when you're surrounded by enemies, you're constantly in a state of siege, uh, and security is your remains, really, your number one consideration. Isn't it, isn't it a bit different with Israel? Because... Isn't it for a lot of people? It's not as if they hate Israel and they want Israel to go away. It's just they see a war between Israel and Palestine and they'll say Israel is, is, is doing the wrong there. So they might not be specifically saying targeting the Jewish people, isn't it? But they, many of the people that you're talking about, when you actually examine their views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm not being funny, they have a very black and white simplistic view, which is David versus Goliath. Okay, But when you ask them, are they aware that there's an Arab party in the Israeli government? Are you aware that every Arab citizen has the same right to vote uh, as a Jewish citizen of the state? They haven't a clue about any of that. They're told apartheid. Yeah, They're told killing, uh, targeting uh, children. Uh, They're not told that Hamas uh, have their missiles in centres of densely populated areas, including in areas where there are large numbers... Uh, of, of children and you know what shocked me I actually had an hour with Jeremy Corbyn once on anti-Semitism yeah and what shocked me in this hour which was very civilised and was very polite and there was only me and him there and my then assistant um, who has actually gone on to work for various think tanks in Israel um, was his shallow superficial knowledge of all of these issues 
This is a man who was happy to go on marches and make grand statements constantly about Israel and its uh, evils and inverted commas in, in, in his eyes. Okay, and when I actually challenged his knowledge, never mind challenged his views, I was actually shocked at his lack of understanding and knowledge on many of the issues. <laughs> so um, we have to we have to understand, and the Labour Party needs to understand that no. A Jewish person in this country that says that Israel should be immune from criticism, that any uh, democratic you need uh, country is uh, subject to anyway. That is not what the Jewish community on the whole in this country is trying to achieve, or the leadership of this community. What we're trying to achieve is that Israel should be treated in a fair, proportionate uh, way, uh, like any other uh, uh, country, uh, like any other democracy. You know, compared to most countries in the uh, Middle East, it's a bastion of democracy. Yeah, and civilization. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that is what we we're, we're asking for. And as I say it remains a concern uh, about where the Labour Party stands on those uh, issues, um, and therefore um, I'd be interested to see you know how Christian deals uh, with uh, that because he's chosen to join a party that for many in the Jewish community has yet has not yet quite done enough to heal the wounds and build the bridges. So the bat- there's a, this battle basically just a battle of misinformation disseminating all this information that is against Israel, which is probably wrong. Um, a lot of it is misinformation. Okay. Uh, some of it is deeply ideological. I think a lot of... Uh, that would be on both sides, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I would say to you that a lot of people don't also understand this sort of uh, certain kind of ideology, left-wing ideology, which says that um, the West is evil... America is the worst personification of evil, and Israel is a proxy state of America in a region in the Middle East where it doesn't belong. This is also a view that you get amongst on the left, the fringes of the left, the far left, okay, that a lot of people don't understand. And ironically, this man, Corbyn, who believes in all of that, right, who believes the West is worse than Russia, by the way, in all of these places, and wanted to be the leader of one of the great Western liberal democracies, the United Kingdom. And what's fascinating about it for me was when people mock the electorate, and the working classes particularly, when it came to that election, it wasn't just the Jewish community who rejected Corbyn in vast numbers. It was many ordinary working class people who were British and who had real concerns about his lack of patriotism, uh, his lack of concern about the security of the country. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's very interesting how they also were deeply uncomfortable about the prospect of Corbyn becoming prime minister of the country. Now, I also happen to think some of them were also concerned, non-Jewish people, about anti-Semitism. And this should give us some room for um, uh, hope that there were a significant number of British people who did not like the anti-Semitism. And it contributed to their decision not to vote Labour at the last election. And you've got to remember, look, there's many people, including in our community, who are listening to this. Their parents and grandparents would have been conservative all their lives. Okay. So they're bound to not like Labour very much, let's be honest. Okay. But there are many, there's a long tradition of Jewish people voting Labour. People forget this, right? A very long tradition. And it was heartbreaking for many of those people, often for the first time in their lives at the last election, to go out and vote Conservative in many, many cases, and in other cases not to feel able for the first time to vote for the Labour Party. Oh, so it was a main transition from when everyone started to vote, all the Jewish people started to vote from Labour to Conservative during when Jeremy was running. Correct. Basically, well, there's been different stages in history. Um, before um, the uh, mid to late 70s, um, the Jewish community tended to vote Labour. 
Um, then when Mrs. Thatcher came along and the Labour Party went very much to the left in the in the in the seventies and the eighties, the Jewish community, uh, significant numbers, went uh, conservative. Then when Tony Blair uh, came on the scene, the Jewish community, largely significant numbers, went back uh, to the Labour Party. Um, uh, but there was no, this is an unprecedented uh, movement away from Labour. People, uh, Jewish people just feeling, you know, we all know the collective sigh of relief when that exit poll came out on the general election night in 2019. Everybody, Jewish people were, were sitting in their houses wondering for the first time whether they would have to leave this country. Not because Corbyn would drive them out 24 hours after becoming Prime Minister, but because they would feel so deeply uncomfortable about living here under a man who was so hostile to many of the things they care about, um, that that's how, how high... Uh, the, st the, st the stakes were so people need to remember that and that is not a long time ago 2019 is not a long time ago yeah I heard Christian Wakeford say on a podcast uh, before he moved to Labour saying that when uh, the night he won he went to a local restaurant and then a, a Jewish woman came over to him crying to say thank you to say they would have probably left if not that he won yeah so it's, it's, it's even he didn't realise the full extent of how bad it is no look I think I ought to say on this podcast that there are people, many people, will happily impress which vote Labour in local elections. They've got some great local councillors um, who they think do a good job for them, and uh, they'll still vote Labour in a, in a local election. But um, in a general election, um, during that period, and maybe even now, in terms of their concerns, uh, they couldn't bring themselves to vote Labour and risk the election of a Labour government nationally. Now, Keir Starmer is better than Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and he's doing he's doing what he can. He's doing you know he's doing quite a lot um, to try and improve things. But in my view, uh, there is still a long way to go, um, and many of the people who hold these uh, views uh, continue to be uh, in the party. And it worries me, as I say, with the party conference. Uh, it's not that if a minority had put a resolution to the conference that had been voted down that was hostile to Israel, calling for boycotts, I would say, okay, that could happen in any situation. But when it's passed with an overwhelming majority, that, that should be a cause for concern. Yeah, so just looking at Israel and Palestine, obviously there's a war going on between them. Yeah. And a lot of people accuse Israel of doing war crimes, of yeah. stealing people's homes, which yeah. is a war crime, stealing yeah. land. Do you think there's no smoke without fire, meaning there is something wrong? That Israel Look, I, I have been to, I held various positions in the government. I was the Minister for the Middle East for a year. I was very involved prior to that, prior to being a minister with Labour Friends of Israel. Uh, I've been to Ramallah, I've been to Gaza, believe it or not, long before, um, I have to say, Hamas had control of Gaza. Uh, I met the Palestinian leadership on many occasions. Um, I would say this, the, the fact of the matter is this, that we want the Palestinian people to live much better lives and have much better opportunities than they have right now. But there is a reality. The West Bank is controlled by Fatah. Fatah is a corrupt organisation, which is why large numbers of Palestinians, by the way, started to vote for Hamas. Okay? Uh, Gaza is ruled by a terrorist organisation, which wants to destroy the state of Israel and has a close alliance with Iran that wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Who on earth is Israel supposed to negotiate with on a two-state solution, when you have that reality. You have um, uh, Fatah, half of the Palestinian factions running one part of the Palestinian Authority, you have Hamas running the other. So when people talk about a two-state solution, who are you negotiating with? And who are you giving that state to? Okay, 
So yes, everything should be done to improve the economic well-being and the social well-being of ordinary Palestinian people, whether they be in the West Bank or Gaza. I really believe that. And any restrictions that can be lifted that do not jeopardise Israel's security should be lifted. Okay, But this is not a game. You know, there was a, people seem to forget, it's not that long, long ago, there were suicide bombings, at, one after the other, um, of people trying to blow themselves up, providing they blew a few Israelis up in the process. That was the reality. Um, and then the fence was built, of course it was called an apartheid wall, and of all of those things, which it certainly wasn't meant to be, that wasn't its purpose, and many of those suicide bombings uh, uh, stopped. So on the ground, there are some very real security concerns. Uh, my only, as I say, message would be, uh, as, wherever restrictions can be lifted and freedom can be granted of movement to people, um, which doesn't jeopardise Israel's security, Israel should do everything it can to facilitate that. But at the end of the day, Israel is surrounded by, unfortunately, on its doorstep, it has um, Iran, it has Hamas sponsored and fuelled by Iran, Okay, and he has Syria, which has uh, got Iran, uh, Iranian interests in Syria. Okay, supported uh, Syria. Obviously, is controlled by Russia. We've just seen what Putin has done. Okay, Putin says he's a friend of Israel. He's a friend of the Jews. Well, let's see. You know, I I think the jury's out on that. Myself, we cannot afford to be at all complacent about this man after what we've seen him do in, in Ukraine. In my view, he's capable of doing anything which he perceives as being in Russians in his interests. Okay, so the idea that he's some great friend of Israel, I think we need to be extremely uh, cautious uh, about that. And at the same time as the world is saying, we need to learn the lessons of history by standing up to Vladimir Putin and not allowing him to get away with this in Ukraine. Because if we get if he gets away with it in Ukraine, where is he going to go next, and where are other tyrants going to go? The same time, the West is trying to sign a nuclear deal with Iran. Can you believe this? A deal that would be predicated on trusting Iran to deliver on its promises and lifting a load of sanctions on the Iranians, okay? It's absolutely extraordinary, okay? I am amazed. This is being done, uh, you know, because uh, you the, absolutely quite rightly, the focus is on Ukraine. Do you think it'll go through? Uh, I, I, think the, I think even now, uh, the Biden administration, uh, the Europeans, are determined to press ahead. They think it's the best way of containing Iran is to sign this deal. I don't agree with them. Yeah, I don't agree with them. I think that you um, are deluding yourself if you think the Iranians will honour their commitments and if you think by lifting sanctions that's going to get them to behave in a more moderate way. It is a nonsense, okay? And um, I think that I hope, I would still hope, even at this uh, last minute, uh, that America and the Europeans and others will rethink this entire uh, strategy towards uh, Iran. Um, they are a massive threat. Obviously, they're a tremendous threat to Israel, but they're a threat. To, look, they're, they're, they're a threat equally, you know, to Saudi Arabia, to the United Arab Emirates, okay, to many of the Arab states. Which is one of the reasons why, of course, you now have the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and other countries, um, Morocco, forming um, alliances as part of the Abraham Accords with the State of Israel, because they are equally threatened by Iran and the fear of Iran and what Iran wishes. Uh, the, the, the destruction that Iran wishes to, 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 to wreak. So, um, you know, it's right that the world is focused on um, doing everything we can to protect the Ukrainian people, to help the Ukrainian people, to support the uh, president of Ukraine. But while that is happening, 
Remember the threat that Iran poses, not just to Israel. If Iran has control, greater level of control in the Middle East, that is an ult ultimately a threat to world stability. You, and you mentioned Iran, Iran cannot be allowed to have a nuclear a nuclear weapon. Yeah, you met, you mentioned um, Abrahamic um, Accords, which was by Trump. I yes, it's, um, it's been in the news age, but you've been thinking about actually running again. Yes, do you think you should run again? Or I, I don't comment on who should run and who shouldn't run America. I, I would say this: um, there are many things about Donald Trump that I do not like. Uh, I have to say that um, uh, you know his, his, some of the things he says, some of his behaviour. Um, what was done in terms of inciting the riots in Congress were, were beyond the pale. But that does not mean that Donald Trump got everything wrong. Okay, let's be clear about that. And much of what he uh, believed in terms of foreign policy um, was correct. I mean, he was the um, one that managed to get across. The Abraham Accords were a tremendous achievement. And I think had any other leader other than Donald Trump, who much of the world did not like, let's be honest... Um, Just a bit. <laughs> had achieved the Abraham Accords, they would have got uh, maybe a Nobel Peace Prize, okay? Uh, even, to some extent, the way he dealt with the dictator in North Korea was quite clever. He pandered to his ego, he engaged with him, he uh, tried to have a dialogue, because previously everything else had failed. This guy was going on, you know, testing nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. So, Do you think uh, it would have been different with Russia? With, that we'll were... never know that. I think it's a, it's a very, very difficult... Uh, difficult question to answer. I mean, Trump, of course, it's in his interest to say now, if I would have been president, um, it, it may well be, because one of the things with Trump is he was so unpredictable that it may well have been that Putin would have been more worried about what would have happened. And it's probably more likely that Trump would have said privately, you know, you can do whatever you want, but don't, do, don't, don't go into Ukraine, whatever you do, because if you do, there'll be serious consequences. And he probably wouldn't have told him what those consequences would be, okay? Yes, let's build hotels in Moscow, Trump hotels, let's get my, you know, businesses to benefit um, from that type of thing, Vladimir, we can all make a few quid. Seriously. Yeah. However, don't go into Ukraine. Now, it may have been that was the sort of dialogue he would have had, but because of Trump's unpredictability, look, in my opinion, the West, the reason we, one of the reasons we've got the problem that we've got uh, with Putin is the weakness of leadership uh, that, that, that we've seen. Uh, you know, Obama allowed Russia into Syria through his weakness and by saying America, America was no longer going to engage in the world. Okay? okay, Iraq may have been a mistake, it may not have been a mistake, but just because of one wall, you don't send the message of weakness, it's a disaster. Okay? Because America has sent that message, because Europe on the whole, is sending that message. It's that the, we're being laughed at by the tyrants of the world, right? They really do think that they have got us running around in circles. China, Russia, and to some extent, uh, Iran. And um, the West needs to get real, and it needs to get real very, very quickly. Your generation is the most fantastic generation. Entrepreneurial, uh, bright, creative, the knowledge that you have, okay? But I'm worried about what you're going to face. That's not insult their parents. Uh, no, but it's true. Yeah, no, it's true. Okay, yeah. but, but, but you're going to face, you, you know, you're going to face, you're already facing a cost of living crisis that on the whole, uh, my generation didn't have to face for most of the time, okay? And now you are back in a world where we have the, a Cold War. Let's make no mistake, the consequence of Ukraine is we're back into a situation where there is this Cold War between Russia and the West, okay? Uh, and the implications in terms of China, as I've said in, in this interview, Iran, who, who knows? Okay, so, so, so um, I, I, I feel that your generation deserves strong leaders 
uh, that can really stand up to evil and stand up to tyrants. Not think that you can do business with them. Because that's what we thought with Putin. That's what we're trying to do with Iran. You cannot do business with these people. Okay? Yeah, it seems like it's a big mistake. Yeah, it seems like you really, you really are devoted to politics and, and you, you really want a strong lead and it seems like you would be a good candidate for it. Have you ever thought about running for PM? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm, you know, I'm running a charity, Jewish charity in Manchester. When, I'm really happy. I'm really happy doing that at the moment. About before, um, when you're actually in politics actively. No, I never, I never, um, for, 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 I, ne- I never saw myself, um, you know, I, I was in the, uh, I was a minister in the Labour government for nine years. I was very proud of that. I was in Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet for five years, so I served 14 years on the front bench consecutively. For a relatively young man, that was more than most amongst my contemporaries, amongst my peers, even though I never made it right into the cabinet. So I had fantastic opportunities, you know, to, to make a difference. I was in the Department for Education, the Department of Health. It just sounds like a normal thing when people went to politics. It was, ah, I'll try and go for PM one day. Yeah, I think, I think the issue is not, you, you know, you must be driven to make a difference. And in whatever job you're given in life, try and make a difference and try and uh, do, do things for the right reasons. And if you do that, you'll probably get more opportunities and, new, and, and other chances to progress. I think the problem is if you are motivated by careerism, there's a deal, ambition's a very good thing, by the way. All the young people listening to your podcast today, I hope they're ambitious. Whatever they want to do, whatever dreams they have in their life, chase the dream, follow the dream. Don't let any adult, sorry, don't let any older adult tell you uh, you know, no, 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 not for you. You know, you go and do be, be whatever. If you have dreams, go for it. Because by the time you get to my age, you know, you, you've missed your opportunity. I, I, I actually have so. had the opportunity yeah. to pursue my dreams, okay, to, to some extent. What do you okay. mean, charity? No, my charity work, my political work, yeah. representing my hometown constituency for 22 years, all of those type of things. Um, but what I'm saying to you is it's very easy to say to people, oh, you know, just settle for that job or that career, or just settle, right, just settle for no, aim high. You know, really aim for what, what, do you re- what I said earlier, what do you really care about, what you're really good at, and go for it. Um, so, Prime Minister, I think that's part of the... I think one of the reasons the public are so discredited, are, are so um, disillusioned with politics is they see a bunch of careerists who just want big jobs and big titles. What they want is people who want to make a difference. Yeah. Now, okay. If somebody said to me tomorrow, you know, uh, uh, yeah, be, be primary, I might not say, you know, oh no, no, I don't want that job. Okay, but that shouldn't be your primary motivation. It should be make a difference. Whatever opportunity you get given at any given time, do it to the best of your ability, and think about your values and the way you behave, your principles, uh, and, and also what you're trying to achieve. I'm running a, a charity at the moment for people with learning disabilities and autism, and people with physical disabilities in the Jewish community. We're buying people uh, flats and houses in, in this area. We are then providing them with the support they need to have uh, independent lives and have a job uh, and also have a good social and leisure life, working with organisations like the Friendship Circle. So, you know, I, I'm again part of a group of people that are really track, trying to make a transformational difference, but in a different sphere of, of life for, the, for, for, for now. Yes, I, I, Mark Levy actually gave me a tour in Parliament last week. It was Amazing. Very, it was very nice of him to give it to me. Yeah. And we were discussing in there, and he was saying, even a, a, for an, a PM, a Prime Minister, to run, how much do they make a year? 150000 a year? Mm. It's nothing for what you're doing. It has to be that you really want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, obviously, many people 
listening to this, and many people who are my former constituents would look at £150,000 a year and say, wow, it's a lot of money, you know? But of course, in the scale of things, when you compare it to people at the top of other professions, it's not a lot of money, relatively speaking. Um, but, you know, it's not quite as simple as to say that, because there are some people who go into politics after they've made millions, okay? And they never have to work again. And so they've made their millions, they go into politics, they're not doing it for the money, okay? There are other people who come from incredibly wealthy families who don't need to worry about what the salary is. Um, but you want Parliament. <laughs> yeah, what you want Parliament to be, though, is reflective of society. So you want people to be able to go into Parliament from a variety of different backgrounds and ex life experiences. Would you say Boris Johnson is one of those people? Because I feel like he connects with more people than an average uh, person or average MP. Well, I think it's, it's interesting you say that. I think that if you achieve what Boris achieved, which was how many politicians are known... Um, by their first name. Boris is the answer, right? Yeah. Most politicians are not known by their first name. And that was because, for whatever reason, because of his quirkiness, because of his personality, he uniquely connected with people. You're quite right, OK? However, of course, there's been the party gate stuff, which in some people's eyes has damaged that relationship because they have this affection, this connection. Um, uh, that, uh, by the way, uh, nobody should underestimate, this is a highly intelligent man. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the man has written biographies and all the rest. I mean, he's a very, very intelligent he's man. Written, he was written books about Winston Churchill. Oh, absolutely, an incredibly intelligent man. Okay, but he knows exactly how to create an image which enables him to connect with people. And so you're right that in one of the great achievements of Boris Johnson is that connection. Now, as I say, it remains to be seen whether the party gay scandals of recent times have damaged that connection forever. We don't know. The polls suggest it certainly damaged the connection. But is that forever or is it just temporary? Will people move on? We, that, 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 that is unclear at, at this moment in time. I would say, I'll give another example actually. In the mayoral elections in Greater Manchester last time, a lot of people in Manchester said, I'm going to vote for Andy. They didn't say for Burnham or Andy Burnham, I'm going to vote for Andy. And including many Conservatives, by the way, Andy Burnham, as you know, is a Labour person. So he also has connected somehow in his way of communicating, in the way he speaks, in people's belief, of, in his sincerity maybe, yeah? Um, forget the congestion stuff recently and, and, and all of that, which has maybe upset some people. But on the whole, he's also been able, by the way he empathises, can talk, talk in a way that people relate to, and connect with, um, he's been able to achieve that relationship as well. But very, very few politicians, I'll be honest with you. And if you do uh, it, it's a massive skill. It's a massive skill. I, I would say, though, one thing. There was always a question that we asked when I was an MP. If you asked people, uh, do you like, in Bury South, do you like your local MP, Ivan Lewis? Majority of them would say, yeah, he's all right, he's going to do a bad job. If you then ask them a second question, what do you think of MPs? They'd say, oh, they're all a bunch of cheats and liars and uh, you can't trust any of them. So there was always that difference when you asked the public about their local MP. They always gave a more positive answer because they saw that if, if, if a local MP is doing a good job, you'll see that person in shul, in church, in the mosque, in, in, local, at local, in the local shops, at local schools, local businesses. So it's hard just to have this distant view of them. You actually form an opinion because you have a relationship with them to an extent. Yeah. If you were a good MP, by the way, that, that should be what good MPs are doing back in their constituencies. Not all MPs do that, but many, many, uh, many do.
Um, so you mentioned but Forrest's party with the scandal that's going to affect um, how people like him, how that's going to go. Um, since you, since Ukraine, uh, Boris has really been focusing on that, and I think it's really helped him. Helped uh, it has undoubtedly for him. I mean, it's got the attention off him personally. Um, do you think he should resign? Because obviously, there's a lot of calls for him to resign when the party was up in flames. Well, think I think I think, the, I think the answer to that is that you, we only know what the press has reported so far. We haven't had the police investigation. Based we, off what the press has given. No, I don't, I don't. I never believe that. I think you wait for the facts. Look. In my political life, I have seen so many stories appearing that turn out not to be true, or half-truths, or uh, out of context, or distorted, right? So let's see. Right. If, if it turns out that the uh, Sue Gray investigation, um, when it's able to present its full report, and when the police investigation, it demonstrates that uh, there was serious wrongdoing by the Prime Minister, then I'll have to be consequences. But that still remains to be seen. So when the Supreme report comes out and it says he actually did something wrong, would you say he should resign? It depends. Yeah. It depends entirely on the scale of it, what he did, how often he did it, and how much disregard that showed for the suffering of the British people at a time when everybody else was having to make tremendous sacrifices, not being able to see loved ones, not being able to hug uh, grandmas and grandpas. Um, if it was willful and if it was going on in, you know, in, a, in a big way and if he personally was engaging in it then there the will inevitably consequences whether it's a resigning matter we have to see the facts and then reasonable people will make you know the voters are not stupid uh, this is the other thing a lot of politicians treat voters with a complete lack of respect they know what's reasonable and unreasonable i.e. if they see he did one or two things he shouldn't have done but overall it's nowhere near as bad as they thought it was they'll probably say it's not a resignation matter however if they see something different to that, who probably would expect him to resign? Uh, but you have to see. Like, like Matt Hancock, he did something wrong and he knew it was wrong. It was wrong, so he resigned. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that, that's really how it goes. But he was. <coughs> let's be clear. Yeah. He he was caught on camera. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, Boris. All the stuff about Boris is Behind the um, first speculation, off. media reporting. Are you with me? And, and sometimes and quite, they, they tend to go a bit off. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, by the way, I, I am not on underplaying. How angry! I, I, I was shocked at the anger of people, my friends, who were Boris supporters, at their anger at him and the, and the sense of feeling very badly let down by him. Okay, so let's see, let's see. But it's quite right that the British people and the Labour Party right now are not focused on calling for him to resign. They're focused on his the job he has to do leading this country in the unprecedented threat we see in Europe that's being posed by what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine. Um, I might, might want to mention, by the way, I'm involved with Russell Conn, who's the president of the representative, Jewish Representative Council here in Manchester, and one or two others in yeah, preparing. Mark Levy came on here. He's also works in Jewish Representative. Yeah. Mark Levy and Mark yeah. Adelson, yeah. yeah. We, we're all involved in trying to prepare a strategy in the event of, 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 of Ukrainian refugees wanting to come and live in the Manchester Jewish What have community. you done to create? What, what's, uh, well, we're putting in place the plans. Uh, we've asked uh, host fam potential host families people are willing to provide sponsorship um, to get in touch with the representative council so we can build a database and then as people come or express an interest in coming here we can have the systems in place to absorb them to support them uh, to make sure they're welcomed and to make sure they have the support they need many of them by the way will be tremendously traumatized now it remains to be seen how many ukrainians and how many ukrainian jews specifically want to come to the uk and then how many of those would want to come and live in Manchester? Inevitably, most will initially go to London. 
We don't know the numbers, but we are putting in place. It's important, you know. And I think there's been a lot of focus on the government scheme, which is about opening up a, a room in your house or a couple of rooms in your home. There's, there's so other, many people have offered that. Yeah, yeah. but the, the, many people have offered that. But there are other ways you can help. You know, if your family has got money and means or wishes to make a contribution, you can pledge sponsorship to a, a refugee, which wouldn't necessarily mean them living in your home, but would mean paying their rent in a flat somewhere in this area for six months. Which is better for them? It would vary. Oh, it it would vary. It depends. Yeah. The government scheme is very much focused on opening up your home. But what's been missed is there will be the opportunity, as I say, almost certainly for people to pledge an amount of money so to, 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 to pay the costs of, of, of a refugee or refugee family living in rented accommodation. Right now with Ukraine and Russia, Russia's obviously going into Ukraine. Do you think Russia will be able to capture Ukraine despite all what the media is saying? Because it seems like they, every few weeks, they keep, every, few, well, every few days they really keep changing what's actually happening, who's winning. But what do you think, actually, do you think, what do you think the outcome is going to be in a few weeks down the line or a few months? We have no way of knowing that. I think that what we're seeing is a remarkable courage and inspiration from the people of Ukraine, led by a president who is earning, you know, we talked about the lack of trust and respect for politicians, who's earning respect from around the world. He happens to be Jewish. Uh, amazing story, he was a stand-up comedian not that yeah, long ago. So okay. Just shows you uh, what life, how life can, you know, you asked me about prime ministers and all that. It, it's amazing what life can do. And the courage of that of the people of that country is remarkable. The leadership has been incredibly impressive. The Russians definitely underestimated the determination of the Ukrainians. Uh, the West has given uh, uh, quite a lot of support. We need to give them more support. We need to get uh, tougher as much as t tough as we can uh, on Putin. So there's no point in wars. It's, it's very irresponsible for people to predict outcomes. It's not a football match, you know. It's um, we, we have to put, hope. Should we put more sanctions on uh, Russia? Well, we put we should put as many as we can. I, I mean, there's obviously in recent, you know, belatedly, but in the last week or two, the sanctions have got much tougher. But, it's also, but we need to do even more. But it's done worse for um, UK as well because that's why they put on, uh, in I think the on last Thursday they put on certain uh, they put on certain um, tax cuts or something in the UK because also all the sanctions we put on Russia was, yeah. was affecting us. No, not really. I think you've got to be careful about that. Um, I think we're worried. I think that the, the cost of living crisis oh, was, was a problem um, before Russia went into Ukraine for ordinary people and, and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, with the fact that the West is so dependent from an energy point of view on Russia is, is another terrible error of judgment. Um, I mean, Trump was 100% right about this. You know, he said one of the most important things the West could do would be to make sure that they weren't dependent on Russia for its, its energy. Um, so yeah, there is a there is a serious potential knock-on from what's happening in Ukraine in terms of cost of living uh, here, and that's what I meant earlier when I talked about your generation having it tough, and we have to do everything possible to assist and support you, you know, through through, through this. Um, <coughs> so you see right now a lot of social media, uh, social media influence, uh, not a lot. Sorry, this starting a new era where social media influencers who have a large following online are running for prime minister or president and you see that and, and you mentioned in ukraine he had a massive platform behind him he had this show on netflix which has yeah. now gone viral yeah. um what a surprise and then and he he began he won and he became president and well even trump he, that's the biggest case he was a, a host of the apprentice now he managed and he had Correct. 80 million followers when he Correct. started something mental uh, and he used that to become to become president is there an issue with that because to say you've got a really massive following behind you let's say for you I'm not sure if you had a massive following behind you but 
with that massive problem behind you, they will become disillusioned with what you do, and they will vote for you just because they like you. Is there an issue with that coming to today's uh, world? Well, obviously, communication has changed massively as a result of social media, and um, it, it's a phenomenon which can be used for good and can be used for bad. Yes, yeah, so the point of um, saying would be used for bad. Well, is it bad to be able to galvanise support? Not necessarily, no. Um, do people get disillusioned? Well, of course, le- the, 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 you know, the, there's a saying that um, all political careers end in failure. So what that means is that however good a politician may be for a length of time, by the end of their period, people will probably be saying, you know, they're letting us down, they're not doing what they want them to do. I don't, I'm not sure it's inevitable, but that's what is often You just look at the problem, so it's like 25%. But, but actually, the, the Ukrainian president was not, you know, he was not... At the point the war started, he had actually lost quite a lot of popularity in Ukraine. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, he very quickly recaptured that by his courage and his leadership and the strength of that leadership. So, look, social media can be used for good and for bad. I've said that. Look at the way that Trump used it. He used it to build a movement of support, supporters. That's, uh, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But then some of his behaviour on social media was the worst, sending the worst kind of examples out to all generations about how you should behave, you know, uh, standards of behaviour that would be expected. So I also would say to you that my experience of social media was very mixed. Some of the abuse by people who never met me, who didn't know me, who didn't know what I believed in, didn't know what I stood for, was absolutely shocking. And actually my uh, female colleagues had it far worse. Um, and it did, I think, cause a lot of problems and does continue to cause a lot of problems that people feel able to write and say things on social media that they would never feel how can we stop that well it's very hard to regulate isn't it i mean it's 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 incredibly difficult i think that you have to hope that over time um you you do need social media platforms to exercise more responsibility this this issue as i heard um mark zuckerberg who runs Matter? He went on a he went on a podcast a few weeks ago, and he said with bullying, especially like what happens here, it's extremely hard to regulate on social media because mm-hmm. what you'd I'd say to you might be might might by the bots or whoever's trying to figure it out might seem like a good thing, but in real life, it's yeah. a bad it's a bad thing. So you but, can't really tell what's right and what's wrong. But, but I would say that you know we're talking about the effect on politicians let's talk about the effect on young people let's talk about mental health let's talk about body shape let's talk about peer pressure let's talk about as you've talked about bullying i actually had responsibility at one time um, for tackling bullying in government um, in terms of bullying, in, bullying bullying in schools it, it was at the time um, it, it's um it's causing it's corroding many young people's life experiences so it, it, it can be used for tremendous good, don't get me wrong, for creating movements, for empowering people, for holding the powerful people to account. But it's also shockingly, in my view now, affecting young people particularly in a very, very detrimental way. So somehow, and also this obsession with being on one's phone, you know, I mean, I as I, I become much more religious in recent years. And one of the beautiful things about becoming more religious is discovering what Shabbos really, really can be. And, and I don't think people realise who are not at Shoma Shabbat the wonderful feeling of not having your phone on just for 24 hours. People say, I'll be bored. I won't be able to talk to anybody. Who would I communicate? It is the most freeing feeling yeah, of just being able to completely chill 
and completely relax. It's not people, as I say, my I, I, now I'm more religious. I wish I could get, I wish somehow I could get this message out to people who and I, and I, and I try that actually Shabbos is not a boring, horrible existence. A lot of people probably it, think. It can be the most freeing, empowering, wonderful, providing you've got a lovely family around you, uh, lovely friends, and you've got think you know, as well as praying and going to shul, or if you, even if you, you know, you, you want to pray at home, or you, you know what, well, you maybe don't want to pray very much at all. If you've got lovely people around you, and you've got great networks, it can be the most fantastically relaxing, peaceful experience. Yeah. But one of the reasons is you're not attached to your phone, and it's not just your generation by the way it's your parents it, it's absolutely extraordinary but the, issue, the, the issue is how it's saying we're saying Shabbos is good well it, yeah. it is but what we're saying is that's be, a lot of the reasons why like you mentioned is because having a phone being on a phone so long is bad it can cause mental health damages but it shouldn't be like that when you go on your phone when you go on social media it should be a good experience it should be yeah, but it can be can't it it can it, be but it can, it can quite vary like you were saying yeah yeah but it, it can be healthy and it can be used for good but too often Look, the balance has gone, in my view, into an unhealthy place. <laughs> and so Facebook and Twitter... Um, what do you mean by um, that, by how, many, how much teams are going on it? Or is it what no, no, the, the, the scale of concerns about uh, mental health, about bullying, about uh, racism or anti-Semitism, um, the scale of it has become so overwhelming that there does need to be... Either the companies need to exercise greater responsibility, or the governments need to come together and create a more regulatory control system. Now, I don't want to squeeze the best of innovation and creativity out of social media, it would be wrong. But there's no excuse for what some of the things that come. And unfortunately, look, let's be honest, in our community here, in the last four years, we've had a number of tragedies amongst young people. Now, I don't want to say that all of those tragedies are a result of social media, because they're probably not, okay. But we know that there is a serious, I don't want to use the word crisis, but there is a serious mental health problem amongst many young people in our society, in Britain and in the world, and also very specifically here in our Jewish community. And uh, thankfully, some of the older adults are now not burying their head in the sands, are actually doing something about it, are facing up to it, supported by young people themselves who, who have not got those problems or helping other young people. You mentioned some of the work you're involved in, or youth, okay. youth, youth work. We can't anymore think it's about somebody else. It's somebody else's family, somebody else's problem. It's not. It's our families. It's our friends. It's our community. Um, and, and and it's all right saying. People say to me, "Oh, it wasn't mental health problems when I was growing up. You know, we didn't have all these." It's not the point. You know, for What's these for these people, happen? and there was probably a lot of it was hidden and wasn't spoken about because of the stigma involved. Yeah. But yeah. organisations like uh, Neshama, uh, the Jewish Action for Mental Health, the Helpline, uh, the Fed, all of these organisations are uh, beginning, in my view, to come together to, to, to ensure that mental health is taken more seriously. Even the organisation I run, the Focus Foundation, which, as I said, we are supporting people with learning disabilities and people with autism and people with physical disabilities. Many of those people also have mental health problems. So we're increasingly aware as a society of the need to take... It's one of my great sadnesses that governments of successive parties have still failed to achieve putting mental health on a par with physical health. If you break a leg or you damage an ankle, you can go to your doctor you can get quick with treatment. NHS, yeah. If you have depression oh, or quick. anxiety... Maybe, maybe it won't be so quick. Looking at the NHS right now. No, yeah, you know what I mean. But <laughs> yeah. waiting lists, if you want, you know, to see a therapist, 
or you want a, a significant course of treatment rather than just a few sessions here and there. You can wait forever. So if you haven't got money, if you've got money, you can pay for it, or you can go in the priory, okay? <coughs> which is fine, okay? If you haven't got money, uh, the kind of mental health support you're likely to have access to, obviously that's, uh, that's being uh, mitigated to some extent by the work of Jewish Action for Mental Health and by Neshama and uh, uh, the, the Helpline and the Fed and others, but still, for the majority of people, the help is not there when they need it. Yes. And the other thing is, we need to get much better at prevention. It's not just about reacting when people have developed these problems. In our schools, you know, we need to be much more conscious when individual young people are going through struggles and challenges and difficulties. Instead of the school turning a blind eye or being focused on solely um, academic uh, results, by the way, never criticise a school for wanting to achieve qualifications and standards because you need those if you can have a good life. But alongside that, uh, we've got to care and be compassionate for individuals who, for one reason or another, are going through difficulties. In I mean, their I life. think we're doing way better, that, like you said already, like 20 years ago. So much, much better. So much stigma around mental yeah, health. People are talking about I mean, I spoke um, some time ago about my own uh, battle on occasions with depression. And I think it's important that people do feel able to do so. But there are, yeah, it's not easy, you know. And, and if you're um, in a cl in, in in a very close knit community, it's even more difficult sometimes. People forget that it, it, it's it's bad enough being in any community to talk about mental health and accessing mental health services. But if you're in a close knit community, maybe it's even more difficult to open up sometimes. Is there any way we can fight against mental health except for, like you said, just not just react? Um, because right now, I mean, obviously we're being more open, but is there any other way that we can help? Um, yeah, especially I, I young think, people. Yeah, I think it's a combination of what you do in schools. It's a combination of the activities you offer to young people outside of school. It's the combination of peer mentoring and peer support you make available. It, it's it's empowering parents so they feel they know how to handle it. It, it. It's a variety of things, and it's tackling the external influences that affect young people, like social media. Um, it, it, it's all of those. And then it's making sure that people have access to high quality care and treatment from the relevant professional. And the only solution should not be medication. Obviously, by the way, for some people, medication is absolutely essential to stabilise them, you know, to have a feeling. You don't want to but, get to too many people. No, exactly, so. exactly. So it's a combination of all of this. So you mentioned before about free speech and online social media. Um, so, <coughs> apologies. so there's, there's an issue once you see, I mean, not an issue, but there's a question coming to it. You say, where do we put the line of free speech on social media, especially as if you're saying, you put it, you're saying to the companies you have to regulate yourself, you're basically making those private companies being able to do whatever they want and to be able to set their own rules, mm. which can easily go out of hand very, yeah. very easily. And there's being accused even today without that many rules. Yeah. Well, so how, how would that I, I believe very much in carrot and stick. I, I, I believe you give the companies a very clear steer as to what you expect from them. That's government's duty, okay? You give them a time, a period of time to implement, and if they don't, you then regulate. Simple as that. And you have a complete transparency and openness about, with the public as well, about what you what you're requiring and expecting them to do. Uh, so they're not able to say you're trying to shut down a free speech, legitimate free speech, okay? But you're trying to protect the public. Uh, that's what I would do. I'd be very clear. It's not ro it's not rocket science. It's made very complicated, and, and obviously. I would want as much attention to countries working together on this stuff as they work together on national security, for example. Because it has to be global. Yeah. The other thing is there's no good pretending that all of this can be resolved country by country. It has to be done uh, on, a, on, on, a, on an international basis. But should there be free speech online as much as it is offline, or how, how would that work? 
Yeah, I mean, I believe in. I, I mean, I, I would fight to the death to protect free speech. But, 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 bullying and intimidation and harassment and abuse, right? There is a line, and yeah. if you cross that line, you should be sanctioned. You know, the president of the United States was sanctioned because he crossed the line. Now, there are many people in our community who will say Donald Trump was wonderful for Israel. He was great on the Abraham Accord, and, he, and they're right in many ways. Yeah, but you can't ignore the other behaviour yeah. and say it doesn't matter because of the example it also sets. To others in society. The issue is if you look at like Donald Trump, let's pick Donald Trump's case. Um, so what he did offline was implemented on people. He didn't. I don't think he he put too much online. If I'm right, um, but what he said offline was taken by social media companies and said, "Oh, he did this offline. Let me ban him from online." Hmm. And then he had 90 million followers, which all went to pieces. That yeah. more or less ruined his life. Is that was that might have been taken out of context, yeah. or what, what do you think of that? Well, obviously, right. What I would say to you is. Leaders have a particular responsibility, and they have a higher responsibility to be careful in what they say and how they say it. Right? Yeah. And we've seen through history the dangers of leaders who whip up people and create division and hatred. So leaders have a particular responsibility to behave in a proper way according to certain values. Okay. Um, and that doesn't mean you, by the way, silencing strong opinions that differ from the, the, the mainstream. You know, Donald Trump had opinions, he had every right to hold, that the mainstream didn't like, okay? But he should not have been stopped or inhibited or stymied from expressing those views. But you know something, we all know, deep down, we all know when you cross the line of decent standards of behaviour, whether you're Donald Trump or you're your ordinary man in the street. And, and it's therefore legitimate to get this balance right, that you want maximum freedom of speech, but if you cross the line, there are consequences, whether you're a company, a leader, or whether you're an ordinary punter. I mean, in my experience as being the MP for Bury South, in the latter years, some of the horrible abuse, the personal abuse on um, some of these social media platforms was completely out of, uh, unacceptable. Now, just because people criticised me and didn't like me and didn't like my policies, Every right to say that, and nobody should ever stop, you know, be using other excuses to stop people doing that, okay? But when it becomes highly personal, it becomes abusive and threatening and intimidatory, yeah? That's not, that's just not right, it's not acceptable in any walk of life, social media or not social media. Yeah, and um, just, uh, just moving back to your journey through politics, you said, like you said, you said you start at Labour, then you moved to Independent, if I'm right? Um, was it going from one party to another with different values or that, or that anything that contradicted with each other might have caused an issue? It's a very good question. I mean, I never actually... Um, I, so, so I went from Labour to Independent and then I told people to vote Conservative at massive, the last massive jump election. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a unique set of circumstances yeah. with Corbyn. I think most people accept that. So I would say to you, it's, an interesting, it's a very interesting question. I would say to you on... Issues such as the way that we deal with the threats facing the world. Um, I am probably more in tune with what conservative policy would be. When it comes to a caring, compassionate society and social justice, I would want, you know, historically, the Labour Party would have been far closer to my uh, values. But you've always got to remember that in political parties, there are compassionate and caring conservatives, many of them, okay? Yeah. <laughs> they're not all, you know, they don't care about people, so it's I a mean, bit... And also, and there are people in the Labour Party who have a very, who have a view that we should be incredibly tough in terms of the threats that face the world. But overall, I would say at the moment, for me, that's the dilemma, 
you've got um, all of the cost of living problems, all of the social justice issues, the fairness issues in society, but you've got these tremendous threats that the world is now facing. Okay, And as I say, um, I'm afraid to say this sort of liberal Western lefty view of how you deal with those threats concerns me. Like what? Well, basically, the, the, you know, I suppose, uh, and basically being about to sign a nuclear deal with Iran is just one exemplification of that, right? But also sending messages that we, we are weak. That was what happened in Syria. That's why Russia was able to go into Syria, because Obama uh, made it clear that he wasn't prepared to do anything about what was happening in Syria. Yeah. Um, they're about, as I say, more importantly than that, they're about to sign this nuclear deal with Iran. And that will not, in my view, stop Iran developing nuclear weapons. It will just mean that they are able to, 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 to mislead us, to deceive us, yeah. and do it officially with, with, with validity. So, um, you know, and I, I think it's hard to say this to your generation. My generation did not live, I'm not quite old, I never lived through a war, okay? We had it really on the whole, when I look back, we've had it quite good, yeah? We then had to go through COVID and the pandemic. The first time, really, our freedoms were seriously curtailed. You think about my grandparents, they went through terrible wars. Their freedom was curtailed, you know, for many years. They saw all sorts of horrors, and some of our grandparents saw even worse horrors in the concentration camps and elsewhere. So, but, but my generation, on the whole, had it quite good, yeah? Um, the COVID sort of has changed that for a lot of us. You know, our first time experiencing a tremendous curtailing of our freedom. But what I'm saying to you is, you are an amazing generation. And now I'm talking about late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, early 30s. More creativity, more flair, more innovation, more entrepreneurialism than in the predecessor generations. But you're facing now, in my view, and I don't want to be too much of a doom merchant, I think it'd be dangerous for young people to be complacent about the dangerous world that we are now living in. This Putin thing is not just about a war in one country at one time. There are all sorts of challenges we're going to be facing in the for, for the foreseeable future. Do you feel responsible when you see something like the cost of living crisis in Greece um, going up? Do you, do you feel you're personally responsible because obviously you push for conservatives to go in? Yeah, because I don't think any, any reasonable person can't blame the conservatives for the cost of living crisis. No, the question is how you help people through it. Yes, putting aside um, the cost of living crisis, yeah. anything that the conservatives do. Oh, I see. That. It's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, well, ironically, I, I contributed in a small way to the Conservative Party the scale of the Conservative Party's victory in the last election. Mm -hmm. Ironically now, that person has gone to the Labour Party. <laughs> so, so, so it's not, but yeah, of course, I, I thought about that. And by the way, a, a lot of people in the local Labour Party who were my friends, who worked for me to get me elected over 30 years, were very angry with me. Some of them are still very angry with me. Um, and I understand that, by the way, and it hurts me. You know, these were people who um, I worked with closely day in and day out over 30 years. And it, it's very uncomfortable. But I feel to this day, what they've said to me is, surely you now, now Ivan, you realise you were wrong and you're going to apologise. You didn't really mean it. I have absolutely never have one night loss of sleep in thinking I didn't do the right thing. In my opinion, my only little way of contributing towards stopping Corbyn winning was to sacrifice my own uh, situation um, to, to help. Uh, ensure that Corbyn's candidate here did not win. And that's what I did. And I have no regrets about it. Um, I think I did the right thing. It was one of the most difficult <coughs> things 
uh, I've ever had to do. Why is it one of the most difficult things? Because if you would have seen him doing what he is doing, and you don't think the Labour's the right place to do, was it? Why was it difficult? Because I knew the minute I... You see, a lot of my friends in the Labour Party, although they couldn't admit it, were were quite understanding of why I was standing as an independent. Once I told people to vote Conservative, I knew I would be cutting myself off from many people who've been my colleagues over many years. So although people who are not involved in politics wouldn't understand that, they wouldn't understand that you form these friendships and relationships, yes? You know, the people locally who knock on doors and put leaflets through doors and stuff envelopes, they were my friends and supporters in the Labour Party for 30 years. So I knew the minute I told people about Conservative that many of those people would feel as betrayed and that many of them still don't communicate with me as a result of it. Some some do, and friendships have been reformed. I mean, my view is also... Is it a real friendship if people put that before? It can't be. How, how much of a friendship can it be? You know, if they don't respect the fact that I made the decision I made for the right reason. Remember, like I said, I went into Parliament last week. What yeah. it seemed to me um, that was everything was based on politics. It wasn't like even if I had a friendship with you, it was most of it was based on that if we were in the same direction and we were working together. And if that falls away, then that's not going to be there anymore. I mean, you've visited Parliament, of course, quite. Do you not feel that same way or not really? Or you feel like the real friendships are formed there? Oh, see, I, I was talking more about the friendships that were formed here in Bury South, here in Presswich and Whitefield and Radcliffe with the local Labour Party members and activists who were my um, colleagues and friends, as I said to you, over 30 years. Suddenly, uh, I am telling people to vote against uh, the party that has given me everything over 30 years and I have given a lot of my life to as well. Um, and, and therefore, when I say it was hard, it was hard on a personal level. Look, a lot of people are not involved in politics, don't understand. You're part of a much bigger organisation than just you. You've got yeah. all the people in the background who are doing the work, knocking on the doors, pushing the leaflets through doors, drawing up the leaflets. Just more, the yeah. Yeah. But my, back to my main point though in life, if somebody is a true friend, if friendship should, should be bigger than this, so yeah. how much... How much of a friend were they, in a way, when I think... By the way, some of those people are back as my friends, so they were angry for a short period, and we're friends, okay? But it doesn't change the fact that the biggest single factor um, was we had to stop Corbyn. I did my little bit to do that, and I'm very proud of it. So, yes, back to to what I was asking about Parliament. Um, Do you think those friendships are formed? Are real friendships are formed there, or is it more based on politics? Oh, I see. I would say that when I was an MP, I had uh, three or four really close friends. In Parliament? Yeah, Yeah. uh, and I would say beyond that, that that everybody else was just a colleague, really, not a friend. That's correct. But But that's no different than any other walk of life. I mean, how many friends do most people have? True friends. Okay, you have lots of uh, acquaintances and lots of people you might like or you might mix with, but real friends? You don't have a hundred real friends, do you? You might have fantasy friends on Facebook, um, <laughs> but most of them, uh, you know, so why is politics any different? If you're asking me, are friendships formed across the political divide? Is that what you're asking me? So can a Labour MP be friendly with a Conservative MP? Is that, is that what you're asking uh, me? Not particularly, but just based on what you were saying, uh, you had four really close friends that you count as friends. Were any of those based on that? the opposite political spectrum or they're all within the same no. all the same uh, yeah. length is that an issue or do you think that's totally good I don't know just on a just, uh, just I, I think it happened it, with those people it was that we were elected on the same day in 1997 uh, we went through many of the ups and downs of that era together we met many of our family ups and downs and personal ups and downs together uh, we lived my friends were mainly from the northwest of England so we also 
had that in common. So it was that really. It wasn't really saying I couldn't be friends with somebody from the opposition party. Yeah, but if you get, I mean, sometimes when you're just friends with the same people with the same mindset, it yeah. leaves you in a, in a bubble. Not true, because I would say I used to come home every week, every week, and I would mix with many of my friends who were conservatives all the way through those years. Who oh, remained, who remained my friends. They were very happy to tell me that I was wrong and we were wrong and what we were doing wrong. So not really. I don't, I don't, I don't particularly buy that. No, I think there is a danger you end up in a bubble. Though you're right. I think Westminster is um, a bit of a island in, it, in itself and there is a risk you get cut off but, but of course the whole point of our system where you represent a constituency where which is not the case in many systems yeah means that you have to go home and you have to connect with your voters and your electorate and your are you with me so uh, it, it, it's an excuse when politicians say oh you know they're cut off they, they're, they're meant to, if they're doing the constituency work they're, they're mixing with people back in the with all views with all sorts of views I mean, I prided myself in the fact that a lot of people said that for many of those 22 years, look, we're not natural Labour supporters, but we vote for you because we think you're doing, we know you're from this area, you've lived here all your life, you care about the area, and we think you, you care, so we're going to vote for you. We don't really believe in the Labour Party. So yeah. that was something that I was quite proud of. Um, like, I, <coughs> sorry. like I said, um, th this, this podcast goes to a lot of younger viewers. Um, if, if any of them are interested in becoming an MP, what's what? Just one advice. If you only had, if you only could choose one advice, would you give them to really help them come become politics? It would be to recognise that the first thing to do is to get involved locally, go to the meetings, some of which can be incredibly boring. Okay, meet the people Imagine. in the party that you're most uh, affiliated with, and do some of the, the work on the ground, and then decide whether it's for you. What I object to is a young person who rings me up and says, Mr Lewis, I want to be an MP tomorrow. Uh, how do I become one? Okay, it doesn't work like that. You have to serve a bit of an apprenticeship. You have to do a bit of the work on the ground. And also, why that matters, you can then decide whether it's what you want. Because, believe me, you know, making a choice to be in the public eye, to live your life half in London and half in Manchester, That's half the week, it's not an easy, no, it's not an easy choice. You, you, if, you, if you either have a family or you, 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 you want a family, You've also got to think through very carefully. I mean, I have two wonderful sons, um, 27, 26, Ben and Harry, um, and they, you know, they, they've been incredibly supportive of me, and we're very close. But I don't think it was always easy for them in the playground, you know, when various things were happening. So you've got to understand that the choice you make will have massive consequences for your life. However, my other message would be, I want to see more and more young people involved in politics. I want to see, because of this podcast... Uh, the issue is a lot of people feel out of touch yeah. with politicians, though, because yeah. they don't really know how to use social media as well as young people. Yeah. So well, I also think it's very important that the Jewish community has strong voices in the political world across all the political parties. Very, very important. I feel this passionately, okay? So my other offer would be is if any young person listening is interested, I'm very happy through yourselves for them to contact me, very happy to have a coffee with them, and very happy to talk through my experiences, how you can get involved. How will they be able to do. be in touch yeah. with you? Uh, through you. They, they should contact and you. They should contact yeah. me. And then First instinct, and then I... Uh, then I'll send them your number. I'm very happy. Okay. To. I do that quite yeah. a lot of that. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound grand, but mentoring, if you like. I do spend quite a lot of time with some of the young people who are actually already in politics locally, who have sought me out. I never sought them out, and it's great, and it keeps me 
fresh and, and in, in touch with what's happening. Um, but also, it's something I feel very strongly about. I want to give something back. Uh, I, I've, I've had, you know, had these wonderful opportunities. I'm still very interested, as you, as you can tell, in, in what's going on in the political world. But what I'm saying is, please, it worries, worries me when somebody says, I want to be an MP. You know, if you say, I want to serve my community and I'd love to get involved in politics, that's great. Okay? Yeah. Then find out what it's about, what, how it works. Maybe you should start by being a local councillor on Berry Council or on Salford Council. Yes, yeah, so you, mention, you mentioned it. I started off that. Oh, yeah. So you mentioned if you're interested, you should get in touch with me and you'll sit down with You'll try and help them. Yeah. I'm interested. Do you, could, we sit down? could we make a time? Absolutely, yeah. We're, 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 yeah, we're, we can meet in one of, yeah, either Freebase yeah. or Notions or yeah. Mozzarella or Tam or wherever. It's always been interested, it's just actually how to do it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. How was how your journey? Oh, just another point. Um, from, most people don't want to go into politics. Like I said, it's incredibly hard to, to and I saw that in um, when I was in Parliament, that most people, you just leave your family. It's not as if you don't want to, but it's very hard, and you leave your family behind yeah. half the time. And it's a very difficult choice to make. How did you want to do that from from a young age? And because most people don't. Right. So I, I didn't want to. I, I didn't look. I never got up in the morning and said, "Right, this is my career plan." But what happened was, I was I got involved with the local Labour Party. I was elected to Berry Council at the age of twenty three. They made me chair of social services at the age of twenty four because I was working for the uh, Fed and knew about social care. Um, they then said to me at the age of 28, Ivan, we think you'd be our great candidate for Parliament in this area. And I thought, hmm, really? And then I said, OK, I'll go for it. Um, and you must have thought about going into it beforehand. No. No, really? So, 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 right. All I aspired to be was a local councillor. And this is what I mean. I got on the council. I enjoyed it. I thought I was reason reasonably good at it. I cared passionately not just about speaking at the town hall, but about campaigning on community issues at the time in Sesley Park, yeah? So ironic, we're sat back here doing this interview right back where it all started, right? In the heart of Sesley Park. Um, and then people said, ah, you should stand for Parliament. You're, you're the right kind of guy. You're young, you're from this area. We need a candidate who's connected and involved in the local community, okay? So it happened over time, okay? And then I said yes. Now, when I said yes, did I give enough thought to the impact it would have on my life, on my family? And no, I didn't. You know, if I had a regret, I would say not that I wouldn't have done, not that I wouldn't have done it. You just thought things. But I would have. It's very important. You want that that anybody doing this understands. Half your life in London, half your life in Manchester. It's not easy. One office in London, one office in Manchester. You've got your constituency responsibilities. You've got your Westminster and Parliament responsibilities, and and you've got your family responsibilities, right? Um. So, um, and then you've got um, scrutiny of public life. You know, you're never off duty. You know, yeah. you think you're going for a drink or a meal with your family. You're Always never off watching. duty. Now, I, I always took that as part of the job. You know, if I was in the supermarket and somebody wanted to chat to me, and providing they were polite, very happy to chat to them. But understand, you are never going to be off duty as long as you're in that role. Super and that's a pressure. Yeah. Massive pressure, yeah. Um, so just w one final question I think is um, why aren't you why weren't you better at what you were doing so as an MP why weren't you better um, do you know what I'll, I'll give you an honest answer to that I think if at the time I had been more religious as I am now I think that would have helped me be a better politician Oh. Why? Yeah. Because I think 
what a lot of people who are not religious don't understand is it gives you a framework, it gives you a structure, it gives you a set of values, it gives you a set of opportunities, it gives you a connection with God which is, is very personal and is, is, is hard to explain. Um, it gives you a set of values. It gives you a tremendous support system of wonderfully warm people um, in our lovely Jewish community, you know, whether it's just people who like doing Friday night or whether it's people who are Shema Shabbat um, and 100% kosher. We have this most amazingly warm, um, diverse, vibrant uh, community. So I think that probably is my very, very honest answer. I think had I been uh, more religious, it would have given me a much, uh, a much more rooted existence. Did your path to becoming more religious only start happening um, after you left? It, it started to happen towards the end of my period as a member of parliament. Oh, because you realised that it would make you a better MP or just in no. general? No, it, ca- it didn't come out. It didn't come about as a result of that. It, it, it's because it, I realised it would make me a better person, well, that, that a better member of parliament. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it happened over time. You know, I started off by trying to keep um, Shabbat. Um, I then um, learned to enjoy that. I then started to go to shul much more often. I then met a completely new group of people that I hadn't really uh, had much contact uh, with. And um, I also, obviously, you have this very personal, as I say, connection with God, which, uh, you know, politicians are told not to speak about that, by the way, as you probably know. And look, there'll be many young people listening to this who will be saying, oh, you know, oh. All I would say to them is that... You, you, you don't you can't reject something when you don't know anything about it so it's important not to be closed mind minded I hear so many people say I am not from I will never be from that's okay that's fine okay yeah. but um, you may actually like elements of Judaism that you are not opening yourself up to and just try it see what happens see what works for you try it because if you're feeling unfulfilled and there's things that are not right in your life. On your doorstep, you have this most amazing religion and culture called Judaism. Why think to yourself, why is the one place you're not looking on your own doorstep, okay? And one of the reasons is because you've probably told yourself it's all boring, it's all rules, it's all restrictions, right? But nobody has told you the other side of this, how it's tremendously empowering, how to feel spiritual and meaningful, and to have boundaries, but also have opportunities, the, the tremendous warmth from being part of a, a, a community, the comfort it gives you in times of stress and challenge. So I would say to people, be open-minded, not tell you what you should do, or tell you you need to go on my journey, because you don't, okay? But be more open-minded. So I think that would have made, the answer to the question is, I think that would have made me undoubtedly um, a better member of Parliament. Well, that's, that's a great way to end. Yeah, it's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's on, been a real pleasure to meet you both, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish you all the best with the podcast going Thank forward. You. Actually, I think you mentioned Mark Levy. I mean, he's yeah, a classic example of one of the most talented young leaders that we have in our community, who has you know chosen to having been a lawyer, he's chosen to devote himself to public service. You know, you can be, you can work for this community in a variety of ways without being a politician. Yeah. You can go and work for the Fed or one of the charities or you can um, volunteer or you can set up a, a mental health project. or go. What I'm saying is you can make a difference um, in many ways. 
being an MP or a local councillor or a politician is only one route. Um, but I think it's vital for the future of our community that there's more, if I'm honest, more Mark Levy's in this world. Um, and more, and more people together. like uh, yourselves um, as well, Ellie and Aaron as well. You know, we want more people who are committed. And I, I, I'm going to end on this note. If people are listening to this, go and get a piece of paper and a pen. Uh, write down, what am I really good at? What do I really love doing? And what does my country or my community really need? And then think about what you do, whether what you're doing fits the bill in terms of those three criteria. Okay. Well, thank you so thank much you. for coming on, Evans. Great you. to meet you both. So we end Thank you. Yeah.